Welcome, listeners, to another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love, hosted by Richard Osler. Um, my guests on today's podcast, um, they're going to talk about a new research um, report that they've done. Um, but first, I'll introduce my guests that are joining me via Zoom. Um, Grace Solberg, welcome to the podcast, Grace. Hello. Um, Grace recently graduated from BYU and is starting a master's program at the University of Utah. Tell us about um, what you graduated at BYU and then what your focus of your master's program is. Yeah, um, I graduated from BYU in 2021 uh, and with a history degree and minors in sociology and Africana studies, and I'm going to the U to study American history. And um, Grace was on our podcast way back in episode 242. That's three years ago. Um, and so it's been good to net, get to know Grace and so grateful to have her back on the podcast. And then we also have two BYU professors on the podcast, um, Dr. Jacob Rue and Dr. Michael Wood. Um, welcome both of you to the podcast and you're co-authors of this research we're going to talk about. Um, tell us, Jacob, let's have you go first. Tell us where you got your PhD and just a little bit of bio about you. Sure. I received my PhD from Princeton University. I studied public affairs and urban policy in particular and studied sociology and other fields there. I've been here at BYU now for 11 years. I've taught over 3,000 students and Grace was one of them and uh, has been a wonderful student NTA and now a co-author and somebody I admire a lot. Um, I'm originally from the South side of Chicago. Wow. And, um, my, my wife and I, we have five children and um, we enjoy riding our bikes and listening to your podcast. <laughs> so so well, it's an honor to be here. Thanks for having me. So glad you're here, Jake. And I didn't know you grew up on the South side of Chicago. Maybe I picked that up and I'd be interested in your baseball interests and just that experience, but we'll save that for another conversation. And um, great, it's cool that Grace is um, your student and your TA and now a co-author. And that's kind of a cool thing for a professor to be able to mentor somebody and open doors for them now to just go in their direction and contribute to society. So that's a really cool part of your profession. Um, Dr. Michael Wood, tell us a little bit about you, where you got your PhD and just anything else you want to share. Yeah, and thanks again for having us. Uh, I graduated from the University of Notre Dame in 2019 with my PhD. Um, so I was there for five years, South Bend, Indiana, uh, which is really nice. Colder than here, to be honest. <laughs> sometimes, sometimes students complain about coming to Utah because it's so cold, but uh, I felt like I was coming back to a, a warmer more temperate climate. <laughs> um, let's see, at Notre Dame, I specialized in cultural sociology and sociology of religion. And here at BYU, so I've been here at BYU since 2019. I teach uh, classes on cultural sociology and sociological theory, including um, a unit and especially in my theory class on Du Bois. So a lot of teaching in that class um, and studying Du Bois prompted a lot of the ideas that we developed in, in this paper. So it was a nice connection from teaching to research. 
That's great. We're going to learn more about Du Bois in this this podcast, somebody I'm not too familiar with. Yeah. Is there a rival between Princeton and Notre Dame between you two? Or with the (laughs) University of Utah coming up? Or is it all good? All good. (laughs) Um, Listeners, these are the classes as I'm hearing these professors talk and grace that I wish I took it when I was at BOU. It kind of isolated myself over at the Tanner building in my business career. And I think I lived my whole BYU graduate experience in that building and the parking lot next to it. And once in a while went to the Cougar Eat. Um, But I missed out really on a lot of um, these type of topics and these type of classes and really thoughtful work being done. I'm sure during my day too, um, on these really important subjects. Um, the name of this article, I'm a link so you can get to it in the show notes. It's writ, It's in the Journal for Scientific Study of Religion. The name of the article is Making Space Behind the Veil, Black Agency Within a Predominantly White Religion. Um, what a thoughtful title. And the purpose of this podcast is connect you listeners with this article and the and I just like learning about this topic so that we can better create Zion, um, create better understanding about the experience of Black Latter-day Saints so that they feel included and needed. And maybe even importantly, that we better use their contributions to help us grow as a faith and bring our um, the gifts of our faith to other people. Um, so I'll just turn it over to whoever wants to start first, and it's your time to share with our listeners. Mike, do you want to start as lead author? Um, sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, happy to. So, well, maybe um, might help to tell a little bit of the story of how this paper came together. Um, as I mentioned, I teach a class on sociological theory, and I, as part of that, I teach about some of the founding figures in sociology, especially American sociology. And one of these is uh, W.E.B. Du Bois, who was a black sociologist, African-American, born and raised in the Northeast in New England. Uh, He was the first uh, black American to graduate from Harvard with a PhD. And this did a lot of really influential, became very influential empirical research and theoretical research. Um, And within, I think, sociology's institutional response to some of the more recent activism around the country with Black Lives Matter and so on, um, was to try to incorporate more of Du Bois's contributions and his ideas into our classes. And so personally, I started doing that in my theory class, you know, spending more time studying Du Bois, talking about Du Bois with the students. And one of the things that we talk about is this idea that he develops of what he calls double consciousness, this idea of what is it like to be a racialized individual, meaning someone who is given this racial identity and this identity is 
seen as a is an important marker of who you are, a kind of explanation of who you are, even you know a stereotype essentially that reduces your identity to a, a set of preconceived notions and beliefs. Um, and the Journal of the Scientific Study of Religion put out a call for papers uh, last year, early last year, and uh, seeking contributions for research on religion that incorporated some of Du Bois's ideas. So me, I mean, I know I've read a little bit of Du Bois, but uh, I wanted to defer to the experts in the department, which are Jacob and Grace, two people who I know knew a lot more than I did. Uh, so we got together and started talking about, you know, how do, do we, we, we saw an opportunity to write something important about Black Latter-day Saints and using some of Du Bois's theoretical framework. Um, I'll let someone else take it from there. <laughs> All right, Grace, I'm nominating you. You're up and then Jake's next. All right. Um, so yeah, Dr. Rue had reached out to me um, to ask if I would be interested in helping to contribute with this article. And I was very excited. Um, you know, it's an amazing opportunity to get to work with, right, to establish professors and researchers. Um, and so I was kind of, you know, honored to participate and to um, kind of give my advice or some of my theory to this article. Um, and as we were kind of discussing what we could do, um, I mentioned that, right, Du Bois talks about this idea of two-ness um, that Black Americans feel, that their identity being Black and their identity being American are almost constantly in conflict with each other. And you're forced to try to, right, balance with that conflict. And I proposed the idea that African Americans who are also a member of the church almost have a threeness because all three of those identities don't really go together. And so, how do they cope with or kind of adjust um, themselves almost psychologically and sometimes in terms of lifestyle into dealing with that conflict? And it almost was a little, started off a little bit more anthropological. I kind of, you know, thought of. I just kind of, from what I had observed growing up Black and Mormon and what I can see around me, right? how do people go about um, dealing with these identities? And I came up right, with these five groups that ended up becoming our typology. Um, and then from there, we looked at uh, public accounts to try to see how they mapped onto these typologies. But that was a little bit more about what Dr. Rue was involved in. So maybe I'll let him go from there. That's really cool. Jacob, Dr. Rue, you're up. Yeah, thank you, Mike and Grace. Um, I think the backstory for this article is essential, and, and I appreciate you reading the title of the article for our listeners, Richard, about making space behind the veil, Black agency within a predominantly white religion. And, um, and writing for multiple audiences makes it more interesting. Both our peers, this is a peer-reviewed you know, research item that had to pass the editors and reviewers. There are so many scholars of religion, race, uh, social theory, like like uh, Professor Mike here, um, and it really does feel fill a hole right in the literature. Um, what is it like for individuals who are racialized, right, who who navigate the world as black, to be in such a quintessentially white American religion, 
because the LDS faith was, you know, born here in America and 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 traces so many of its roots uh, with the restoration to the idea of of freedom in this country and all these complex contradictions uh, that we, you know, we're given these two divine gifts uh, on this mortal journey of a body and agency. And I think there's been a lot of focus in the past on the idea of uh, skin color and difference in race and slavery, uh, the priesthood restriction that I know we'll talk about a little bit later, the restriction on the priesthood in the temple and the LDS faith that's no longer in place, and that idea of difference, um, but not as much on the idea of Black agency. Um, and when I was in Tallahassee, Florida with my daughter at the National Cross Country Championships, we went and saw the sidewalks where the second biggest bus boycott happened after Montgomery in Tallahassee, Florida, which of course I never knew about until I went to Tallahassee. You could almost miss it. And when we were driving through the neighborhood, we saw a sign that was really big and it said, Black Joy Matters. And it was a really beautiful reminder that this life, right, is about attaining joy. And so what we were really interested in terms of my role for the article, uh, in terms of data collection, was saying, well, let's try to examine the contemporary landscape. And I know you've had historians like Paul Reeve on the podcast before, but as sociologists, and, and Grace is you know, both a historian and a sociologist in this role here. But in terms of the sociology article, right, we're really concerned most primarily with what are Black people in the church, Black LDS people doing right now, uh, let's say the last 20 years or so. And it ended up that most of the data that we collected in our formal content analysis of 52 quotes or public accounts by 40 Black LDS people, almost all of those, Richard, were in the last 10 years. And so that was really exciting. We saw a lot more voices of women. Um, 54% of the quotes were by women. We saw a lot of exciting things from people from all age groups, ranging from age 20s to age 80s. Um, people in their 80s like Kathy Stokes and people getting up there like Darius Gray, established Black pioneers, but lots of other voices that we don't always hear from. And so going into this article, we said, well, why don't we look at things that are already public um, that people have said uh, to assert their dignity and personhood and understand this idea that, that, that both Grace and Mike brought up of the two-ness of right, being both Black and LDS. And we wanted to be careful as we collected the data, not just to get uh, stories that are sponsored by the church website, and to also not just get stories of people who've left the church or maybe upset. We wanted to capture both of those just as part of the spectrum. And I think about one in six quotes are officially you know, church sources from church you know, websites or BYU and so forth. But about five and six aren't. A lot of them are in things like Dialogue, the Journal of Mormon Thought, Religion News Service, uh, lots of articles in the Salt Lake Tribune, the Deseret News. When lots of reporters just interviewed ordinary members about their reaction to different events, what they thought, uh, their stories, their histories. So we had a variety of sources, and um, we went into it without a predetermined idea of where the chips would fall, as they say. We didn't know what the categories would be. And so this is a type of qualitative research, and, and Mike can explain more about that because I'm generally a qu quantitative researcher, uh, but I've done a few qualitative research articles. 
And so we did this content analysis where we attempted to categorize the responses of Black LDS people into different categories on a spectrum. And, um, and so I think I'll pause there and maybe turn it back to, to Mike to say a little bit more. But that's where this started to get really interesting to see the richness of backgrounds, experiences, and especially responses to the idea of being both Black and LDS in, in America. And I'll just add really quickly that over 90% of the Black people quoted um, trace their roots to, to people that were um, formerly enslaved and are Black American. And so this is primarily about the Black American experience. And so we're really excited for future scholars and other people to do work on Black people in Brazil, in UK, in Africa, and other societies. But this is primarily about Black people in America, especially given what Du Bois had to say. So I'll turn it back to Mike, say a little bit more about the origin story to finish up this answer. Yeah, that, that's really great summary, Jake. And I wanted to back up a little bit and talk a little bit more about Du Bois and his work and how it motivated our research questions. Because one of the things that Du Bois writes about is the role of religion in American life, and especially religion in the lives of Black Americans. And Du Bois saw that white religion was very different than the Black religion in the Black church, where in the Black church, the Black church for African Americans was a site of community, a place where uh, Black Americans could go and establish a sense, a valued sense of self, of who they were, um, a rich, uh, you know, multi-layered, complex sense of who they were, uh, their identity, and experience that joy and communion, right? And Du Bois talks about how, at the time that he was writing and the history that he's looking at, um, pre-Civil War, United States and, 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 and after, um, he sees in the white church, frankly, in his words, a lot of hypocrisy <laughs> that the white church would preach things like liberty, mm. inequality, and at the same time, justify slavery and justify racism and, and preach the separateness of race and preach against miscegenation and all these things, right? Um, and so for him, the white church represented not a place of security and safety in a place where black Americans could cultivate this sense of who they were, but a place of alienation and estrangement where if you went to a white church, you could expect to be treated as a stereotype, right? As your race and nothing more than that. And there had been some research on um, Black people in white American churches, but relatively little. And interestingly, Du Bois himself, he grew up, as I mentioned, in a predominantly white community and had experiences in the white church. But um, he wrote a, li a little bit about that about his experiences in his autobiography, which we talked briefly about in the article, uh, but not a really systematic um, treatment of those experiences. So this was our question, you know, knowing that, knowing the history and 
knowing what Du Bois says about how important the black church was for African-Americans and how alienating the white church was, what, what role does religion play for black Americans who belong to a predominantly white religion? Right? Is it doing this kind of constructive work where, oh, I can go there and experience joy and a sense of community and feel valued and feel like people see me as a whole person with, with talents and struggles and all these things? Or do I go there and feel alienated and people treat me like I am just black, right? And 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 maybe discount my gifts and talents and and my knowledge and expertise. Um, so we wanted to yeah, answer that question. What is well, so two questions came out of this. First, um, what exactly how do black Latter-day Saints experience? this space, you know, being in a predominantly white church, do they experience this sense of two-ness? So two-ness here refers to this idea that I have a sense of who I am as a competent, talented, valued individual, important member of the community, and maybe most importantly for us, a child of God. Um, but when I go to church, do I also feel like people treat me as a stereotype, right? Um, and so the first goal of the paper was to document the ways that the, these people in the study uh, describe this sense of two-ness. I mean, they don't use that language of two-ness, right? This is the theoretical construct. Um, but they talk about the good things and they talk about some of these negative things so we wanted to document those and then the second goal was to document okay given these experiences and this connects to what jake was saying about the agency how do people respond um, to these challenges uh, and this gets into the categories that we mentioned um I've talked a lot. Do, Grace, do you want to talk a little bit more about those or, or maybe some of the findings too about the tuna stuff, whatever you. Yeah, I can talk a little bit about the kind of the categories that we came up with. Um, and they were kind of, you know, I, things that I had just noticed and I came up with kind of initial names and kind of shared that with Dr. Rue and Dr. Wood to see what they thought. And we kind of collaborated on it a bit and came up with the official kind of typology spectrum. Um, you know, kind of on one end, um, you have people who, when dealing right with the conflict of these identities, kind of abandon their blackness completely and kind of just try to adhere to that Mormon identity or that church identity. Um, and that's kind of the assimilationist, right? Trying to just integrate themselves or assimilate themselves completely um, into the church community and just dis disregarding their blackness. And then on the complete opposite end, you have people who can't um, live with the contradiction of being somebody who is proud to be black and proud of their history um, while also being like a very active, faithful member of the church. Those two things, they can't find a way to coexist. And so they completely abandon the church and often, you know, leave um, and then, you know, fully embrace their blackness. And so those are kind of the two polar ends. Then with, you know, two kind of a step in from there. And then the middle category being those who um, 
find that their church identity being a child of God uplifts and supports their identity of being proud of being black in that history. And they can use what they know from their history and how to advocate for social justice and what the gospel teaches to help each other to advocate for, whether it be, you know, political things or things in the church for their own identity, for community, they're able to fully combine those. Um, and they don't, they don't have to, you know, push one or the other identity away. They can live in harmony with those. Um, and so, yeah, so there's kind of that spectrum. And from what we found from these public accounts, it almost was like a bell curve a little bit where the majority of responses were kind of in this middle, uh, that we called liberation theology with the smallest amount on the ends. Um, but I think in Dr. Rue and Dr. Wood could say that as we go on to do part two of the study, we want to get a lot more responses so we can see if that is statistically significant or if it's just the majority of people making public accounts happen to be in a category. Um, but that's kind of the next step is to actually be able to make um, statistical inferences off of what is happening and if there really is, um, you know, these things that are more than just a pattern that we've seen so far. This is really cool. You know, over that Tanner building, they did teach us the importance of research. And um, I was drawn to a particularly um, quantitative research, often led by good qualitative research. And that helped, at least in my profession, help us make better decisions as we understood. And um, I love, so I love, it's different work than I did as a student, but the importance of this type of research to understand and I assume you could address this. The goal of this is to help us as a faith community better support Black Latter-day Saints and their contributions. And also, you know, so you could talk a little bit about, you, you know, at some point talk about, you know, what your hopes are for the research and who you hope will read it and what you hope um, the discussions they'll have about it and how potentially they can improve their circle of influence for and I think the principles extend, this is obviously focused on Black Latter-day Saints, but there's, you've introduced a term to me, and I'm talking a little more than I want to, about Tunis. I actually Googled it while you were talking to know how to spell it and understand. And what a thoughtful concept that I'm not familiar with, but how many people in our faith committee feel Tunis? I probably don't. I'm in the middle of um, privilege and don't feel Tunis. I'm even, you know, from a professional perspective to everything in my personal life, I don't feel Tunis, but a lot of wonderful Latter-day Saints do. And to your point, Grace, I don't think we should ask them to abandon their identity. To I think their Tunis helps us create Zion. But we also have a responsibility for those of us that aren't walking a Tunis road, I'm making up terms, to better support those that are and see their contributions. So I'll turn it back to you. Um, just kind of some initial thoughts as I'm listening to this. This is really cool stuff though. Thanks, Richard. I, I have, I'm, I'm wondering, I think it might be helpful for listeners if we maybe discuss a, a couple, a few concrete examples Great in the article just to, right. Just to help people understand, right. We use the, <laughs> As academics, we get too comfortable, I think, with using these kind of big abstract concepts. <laughs> and sometimes we forget to make it more concrete. Um, so, for example, one of the 
one of the examples that we use in the article, I believe this was a, an example from a former student, BYU student. And I think this was published in an Enzyme article. Um, so this is a Black Latter-day Saint, a young woman, and she talks about her experiences in her ward. And people, you know, somewhat innocently uh, asking her, not realizing how uh, offensive this is, uh, oh, how long have you been a member of the church, right? <laughs> um, the, in other words, so here, here's someone who had been a member of the church all her life, uh, but the assumption was, oh, you must be new here, or you must not know very much about what goes on in the church here. Um, this would be, so this is an example of the kind of thing we're talking about with Tunis, this experience of, hey, like, I know a lot, <laughs> I, and I have a lot of faith, I have a strong testimony, I have a lot to contribute here, but how do people see me? So the, the sense of self that I have of myself and the sense of self that is projected onto me by wow. my white, uh, you know, siblings in this faith, they're not the same. They don't see me as I see myself. So that, that's where that, that idea of tunis comes from in this context. Uh, who do people see me and how do people see myself? And there's often right, a kind of violence that comes with that misrecognition, that ignorance. Um, anyone want to add to that? Yeah, what I would just add really briefly is just it's 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 really interesting because we're in the year 2023. So it, it's it's this interesting um kind of contrast of the fact that yes, it has been now 45 years since the 1978 uh revelation on the priest in the temple. And there are so many multi-generational black LDS members, right? Who who were raised LDS, whose parents were LDS. Um, you know, 44% of our sample was raised in the faith. Uh, one third went to BYU. So there are a lot of people that are LDS who are also black who are saying, well, this is my church too. Um, and, you know, not all of us are from Africa. We're not all foreigners to America. And it goes right to the heart of what Du Bois talked about, that contradiction of being just as American, right, as a white person, in this case, just as LDS and American as a white member. but constantly having to prove and being questioned and people assuming even when you know how it is god will god will judge them their hearts right when people are really well-meaning but assuming that somebody must be new to the church just because of their skin color um making those making those mistakes people have to navigate that all the time we saw among our respondents and, and that can accumulate and, and that young woman uh, happens to be kirsty Stanger Whalen, and she actually ended up working for the church and helping a lot and working with Elder Gong and working with state presidents uh, throughout the world to make things like coloring books more inclusive and so forth and so on. And so there are a lot of Black people making contributions um, right now um, to, to address this, right, uh, that we'll get to in our responses section. But that contradiction just really harkens back to Du Bois's concept of two-ness and double consciousness and being simultaneously Black and American and LDS all, all at the same time. And I'd like to read just one other quote, and then I'd love to hear from Grace about this. Just from, um, uh, this was from Dalen 
uh, Amesa Meku, and she also um, is serving right now in leadership in the Black Alumni Society, the BYU Black Alumni Society. And one thing that she um, wrote about uh, publicly and shared, she said, and I'll just quote her entire quote uh, completely here, and this is on page number nine um, in our article. She said, in my opinion, the white supremacist view of race has unfortunately been present in the church, even down to the imagery used. If my belief is that I am a child of deity, right, a child of God, then my connection to deity will be tied to love for myself. This realization gave me some consternation because the current image of deity was a foreigner to my little girl. Mm. And as a result, she could not see herself being foreign to deity as well. If she knew she was brown, then she could obviously tell Jesus and Heavenly Father were not. And more importantly, that Jesus and Heavenly Father belonged to the family of the classmates in her nursery class and not her own. And so I think to paint a kind of a glass half full picture, we've just seen an amazing proliferation of artwork, imagery, depicting a Heavenly Mother, our Heavenly Parents, angels, um, so many people in the scriptures having a mosaic of skin colors, just like people in Palestine and Mesoamerica would have, right? All shades of brown from black to white. And that inclusive artwork has been, it's been really beautiful to see, but it's really important to also note that many black people have spoken out and helped lead to that change, right? Through, through their agency, their response to this contradiction of saying, well, like, like uh, Mike talked about, right? This is not unique to the LDS faith, white Christian religion saying, well, you know, we welcome everybody. But, you know, all the artwork is going to be of all of all white people. Right. And those contradictions, uh, black LDS people, um, I wouldn't say have not just pushed back, but they've also helped create change. Yeah. And I would uh, want to comment a little bit on kind of that unique experience about um, that black people have with the church, um, because I mean, not every other racial group has definitely had its own troubled history with the church and it hasn't been great for anybody, even certain white ethnic groups that had to find their way to assimilate as well. Um, but black, you know, people have, are the only ones who were told that their, like their identity or their blackness made them somehow unworthy or that they couldn't, you know, be a part of certain things, right? That's the only group that had to experience that. And now in the present, Black people are also kind of the only group that have to be accountable to the Black community for their membership in the church, right? So people don't really think about that and how they have to try to justify their faith in being a member to the rest of the Black community who justifiably so is asking, why are you a part of this church who only so many years ago said that you couldn't even, you know, be fully a part of it. Right. And that's a very justifiable question to ask. And so, right. These black members are not only facing some of these stereotypes from their own membership where they should find peace and community, but then from the black community, they also have to justify themselves. Um, And that kind of leads again to that idea of threeness and how complicated these relationships can be and how sometimes it becomes too much, right? That some people either completely just have to disassociate from the black community because, you know, the faith is, they just, you know, cling to their faith and that's what gets them through. Whereas other people, you know, even if they do appreciate and value their faith, they can't handle white supremacy within the church. So they have to just retreat back into blackness. And 
So I think that that's something that people don't appreciate or understand, right? That black members have to navigate. It's so much more complicated um, and nuanced with that history and trying to balance those identities. Um, yeah. So I just kind of wanted to make note of that. I just don't think that's something people really think about or realize all the time. It's really helpful, Grace. Yeah. And remind me, I'll return to that when we talk about what we want people to get out of our study near the end, uh, that theme that Grace brought up. Keep sharing. Um, I can say one more thing. Um, something that was really important to us as we were going through these public accounts was not to try to put people into a category like, oh, this person fits this group, like this person is in liberation theology or assimilation or whatever it is, but rather just the quote itself or the instance, you know, acknowledging going back to agency that people change and are incredibly dynamic over their life and a black member can go, can be in any, like, you know, they could be all across the spectrum, just depending on what type of, you know, period in their life they are, or what their current experience is. And so to try to acknowledge that agency by not putting, literally by not putting people in a box, but just that specific instance or that specific statement highlighted, right, a certain way of coping with things. And so trying to keep that open and acknowledging that people do move across the spectrum. I'm just going to let you keep sharing. I could interject some thoughts, but I'll interject one thought is um, I just love this idea of Tunis and the the pressure sometimes culturally to not honor Tunis um, and to have people not accept part of their identity in order to fully participate in the church or feel like their skills or contributions are valued. And I might've done that earlier in my life when I, my definition of Zion now would create space for Tunis and actually embrace Tunis. And there's some people that may even feel threeness <laughs> um, within our church um, because of their different identities and um, and just em- embracing all parts of us helps us create Zion and helps us then lift the hands of more. But I recognize culturally or I'm not sure the right vocabulary, sometimes there's a effort to not do that. Um, and that comes from more people like me, white people that are uncomfortable with, you know, just Tunis. I'm really using that word. And, and so I just think this, this sort of research in your personal story, Grace, that you shared before and share consistently in other Black Latter-day Saints helps us grow. I, I did a podcast with the Black Latter-day Saint. I can't remember if it was you, Grace, but Listeners, I felt really uncomfortable during that podcast. And my old self would have said, well, that's the spirit leaving the room. My new self would say, is that the changes I need to make in myself to see and identify racism um, so that I can be a better Latter-day Saint? Now, in saying that, that's what it was. I recognized I had racist views that were being challenged by Black Latter-day Saints sharing their stories. And pretty unsettling to feel that feeling, but I sat with that um, before I just dismissed it. And so is, as I read through this, which I haven't done, and I encourage our listeners do, we may feel uncomfortable at times. Black Latter-day Saints may not. <laughs> Maybe they would. I don't know. But I'm reading it through the perspective of a white Latter-day Saint. I may feel uncomfortable at times, but I invite us to consider, is that the, the personal work we need to do 
um, to honor our baptism covenants, to bear mourning comfort. And then do like I think Grace said earlier is help Black Latter-day Saints feel like they're whole complete people um, that can contribute in a way that we didn't fully realize. Um, and some of the stereotypes we developed and would mute their gifts. I think one of the one of the worst ministering principles we can do is to bury somebody's talents on the hill. And because we don't see their talents and their ability to contribute, and since they're in a less privileged place, they may not have the ability to fully make people aware of their talents. So our part of our responsibility, and I'm looking at Grace here, is to understand Grace's talents and her ability to contribute. And if we're white, to sort of get out of the way and let Grace fulfill her potential within our faith community and our broader community. So that's just some thoughts, you know, from my heart about this pers- this subject, but I'm turning it back to the authors to continue to share. I appreciate that, Richard. Those thoughts and your opening up. Um, one of the th- one one thing that came to mind when you were talking too is, I think there are glimpses in our paper of just some of the potential and some of the possibilities. Because one thing that I think is really important is clearing up the misconception that, you know, Black Latter-day Saints just have negative experiences or, you know, it it could be really easy to just paint a one-dimensional view of Black Latter-day Saints that is mostly negative. But we document also, right, this being part of Zion, right? Being part of this religious community, uh, the faith, the gospel of Jesus Christ means as much to them, surprise, surprise, right? <laughs> as any white Latter-day Saint. And not only that, but the potential of the community is there. So I was thinking specifically of this excerpt. This is from an article by Janan Russell Graham, and she wrote about uh, a conversation that she had with a fellow uh, African American Mormon, um, and so she. I'm just going to read here from the article. Uh, so she says, uh, "This other person, uh, Devon Mitchell. Uh, let's see. She said they told me about an experience with another black convert after the shooting deaths of Alton Sterling and Philando Castile in July. So two African Americans were shot." Um, I found, quote, I found her in the chapel and we held each other and cried, Mitchell said. Quote, as a result of this expression of our pain, something wonderful happened. The members of our ward came together. They embraced us as well and they prayed with us. They mourned with us. Right, so I think it's just a great uh, example of not only the the pain and sorrow um, that a Black Latter-day Saint might experience and feel, but also the potential that the church has as a community of faith, right? Of people that share this baptismal covenant to mourn and comfort one another. And in a very right, direct way, heal the wounds of, of racism um, that we've been directed to 
to do <laughs> by our prophet. Um, so I, so that's one thing that I really appreciated in the perspectives that we read for this article too, not just the pain and the sorrows and the negative experiences of Tunis, but also the faith and the possibilities for community building and covenant keeping. I wanted to add, thank you so much, Grace and uh, Mike. I wanted to add a little bit about this idea of the veil, because, you know, that word has mm-hmm. another, and the LES faith, but, and, and, and Mike can fill me in a little bit more if I miss anything, but, but the idea of the veil and Du Bois's um, just pioneering work, right, as, a, as an American sociologist, as a co-founder of the NACP, you know, just an amazing quantitative researcher and a the- theory person, um, social theorist. You know, what Du Bois was saying with the idea of the veil is that um, there's there's the truth. There's the reality for black people that they are just as American. Right. Uh, But that white people see them through uh, a veil. Right. And this veil is the veil of segregation. Right. What he called the color line. He was so prophetic when he said that will be right. The problem of the 20th century, the color line and racial segregation persists housing and schools have become more segregated. Um, And we've had some victories over segregation in the military and other spheres that we should celebrate, of course. But this idea of segregation and the veil, and it has a spiritual um, implication. Um, You know, our white listeners will be more familiar with Dr. King, although they may not remember this part of the letter from Birmingham jail, uh, which I was really grateful to read so many times, especially as an honor student at BYU many years ago. But Dr. King said that segregation is unjust, right? Because segregation distorts the soul and damages the personality of the segregator. So in other words, segregation is not just, you know, physically putting one person over there and one person over there. It's economically and socially holding people back and holding people down so they can't obtain wealth, social mobility, status in society. And that's wrong, right? Because that's contrary to the American dream. But it's also spiritually damaging. And that's where it gets more interesting because it's damaging to the person who believes in segregation and is doing the segregating. Um, that they, they, ha- they kind of experience a self-inflicted harm. And of course, there's a whole other study that somebody else can do about uh, the healing and recovering that, that white people do when they repent of racism. And there's so many beautiful stories I've seen among my students wow. where... They've said, I'm so glad that I felt uncomfortable and came through the other side of this experience, a new person, right? And that's beautiful. But what we found in our study when it concerns Black LDS people is they were in this fourth category that we found down the spectrum. They were kind of making space behind the veil. Um, They were making space for Black people to come together in the LDS faith. And just like the Black Student Union here at BYU, it's not recreating segregation where white people aren't allowed. They're, everybody's invited. And so many of their family members and spouses are not only white, but they're Latino and Asian, many different races. But creating spaces that are not about, you know, white church leaders or not approaching the priesthood and temple issue is only what did white men do, right? And I know Paul came on your podcast, Paul Reeven talked about how powerful it was with the Century Black Mormons database to have so many more perspectives of Black LDS people like Frida McGee, who waited 69 years to get the priesthood. 
And so now today, people aren't waiting for these things. They are creating opportunity for themselves, right? They're exercising their agency. And you see things like the Black LDS uh, legacy conferences that were started by Black women. And you see the amazing effort that happened after, sadly, after we submitted our article that uh, Mally Bonner, filmmaker and producer of uh, his name is Green Flake, and Tamu Smith of Sisters in Zion, collaborating, raising funds in a public-private partnership uh, with the church to have an amazing monument to Black LDS pioneers, right? Jane Manning James, um, Green Flake, uh, Hark Wales, um, you know, Oscar Crosby, all these Black pioneers who came uh, to the valley right first before the white pioneers. Um, and, and that's an amazing historic accomplishment. And not everybody has to get a statue erected to be recognized, but people are, you know, writing their own original music. They are, you know, hosting podcasts like you do. Uh, you've had James Jones as a guest, right? He hosts his own podcast. There are so many things that Black LDS people are doing that make it rich and interesting and also make it so important to not always view things through like a, no pun intended, kind of a black and white lens of, you know, black and white photographs, you know, things from way back then. And wow, I'm glad we weren't doing the bad things we do then, right? Uh, now, but, but focusing on the present and saying, wow, there are people exercising their agency right now. And if anything, like you said, Richard, people need to step aside, recognize their contributions and just let them flourish and reach their divine potential rather than putting roadblocks in the way. And I can tell you among the younger generation, you know, Gen Z and millennials, whatever label you want to use, there is such a thirst for, for, for what Black Latter-day Saints have to offer. And I think that that's wow. really encouraging. It's not universal, of course. There's so much racism um, that exists in new forms today, but there's so much more original culture and spaces that's being created. And I think that really interested us as researchers and, and, and what the idea of culture means and how it's being created, navigated and negotiated. So I just wanted to add that idea about the veil, right? Because, <laughs> you know, for a lot of LDS people to think of one idea of the veil and the temple and between the mortal life and the pre-mortal life. Um, but this idea of the veil between races is very powerful spiritually to think about how Black people are helping uh, break down the veil and helping white people actually see more clearly, right? And see the truth of their kind of racial quality, but also their spiritual quality. I love that veil. I was, um, the spirit of God played, if I'm remembering some, the veil over the earth is lifting. I think that's wording from that song. I listened to that song that came on yesterday morning and I thought of, I didn't, I thought of, better supporting queer Latter-day Saints um, and, and our efforts to continue to improve in that area. Um, I didn't think of it as in the context of Black Latter-day Saints until you just shared that segment, and I better thought about the title of your article. But that's a, um, I just think that's part of President Nelson's vision for the church is ongoing adjustments, take your vitamins. But I think of a lot of the work can be done at the local level on just what we need to change in our own lives. I think speaking to people in privilege, like myself, to better support people that have less privilege, just like you said, Jacob. And um, so 
I can't remember the exact words of that song, and I'm not even sure I got the song right, but I like the visual imagery of the veil over the lurf is lifting, and your point that that's not the veil to the next life, it's the veil that's here right now that we can work to lift by research and better understanding and hearing stories. Keep sharing. Um, one of the things I'd love you to share is what you hope rank-and-file Latter-day Saints do with something like this. One thing that comes to mind in in his autobiographies, Du Bois expresses frustration because, you know, continuing with this metaphor, the veil, he says, what is it like being on, you know, the other side of the veil, being behind the veil? You, you know, if you feel like you are not seen, you are, are ignored. And no matter how hard you try and struggle against it, Right. People, they can't see you. They don't hear you. Uh, So you can throw yourself against it and scream and whatever, uh, but you are just ignored. And one of the things he mentions is this is not just a tragedy for the person behind the veil, but it's a loss for everyone. You know, one of his one of his repeated refrains in his work is, you know, let us contribute. We have we, meaning Black Americans, we have talents, we have ideas, we have so much to offer. And I think in, in the religious setting, in the setting of the, of the church, right, how much do white Latter-day Saints lose by not trying to peep through this veil, so to speak, or, or rend the veil entirely, right? How how much do we miss out on? Um, as Jake mentioned, there's a lot of really empowering, interesting, you know, spiritually stirring theological work, artistic work, creative work being done by Black Latter-day Saints. Um, how much would we benefit by, by being more open and more observant and seeing Right and embracing um, our fellow members and their talents and their contributions and their faith and their testimonies. Grace, let's hear some thoughts from you. Yeah, I have two kind of thoughts. I think one is, you know, I think it would be really helpful if, especially white American members of the church, almost started to have a tunis themselves and realize that one, they're not just the default for everything. Um, But also realizing that their status as a member of the church is often always um, consistently in conflict with American ideals of who a Christian is and what white Americans are supposed to be like. And I don't think a lot of white American members of the church realize that, that other, you know, especially in conservative spaces, they do not see you as, an equal or the same. They do not view you as Christian. And whether you agree with that or not is realizing that you are not just the default, that you also have these identities and things within you that you should start wrestling with as well. And just stop assuming that you just simply are just the norm everywhere that you go and realizing that you too have important identities that matter and that can help you in some ways. I do think sometimes seeing yourselves in the way that you're 
kind of intersectionality, right? Seeing the ways that your religion or your gender or your age or whatever it be, right, affects your life and the way that you interact with the world. Um, and then something that's not a part of this article that I think has the power to be just absolutely revolutionary is, right, family history work. If more, especially white members of the church who are American, you know, really actually, I feel like did family history work. I think so much of it has just been names, dates, is their temple work done? And that's all that we really have focused on instead of knowing who these people are in their stories and knowing how did, you know, how did they come to America? How did they come to be a part of the church and realizing that you're more than just what, you know, current white America tells you that you are and that you do have these beautiful stories and you do have culture that you can embrace and that can be very healing and helpful that doesn't have any sort of connection to white supremacy right because people are like well why can't we celebrate white culture and it's like well you're not there isn't white culture but maybe you're italian or irish or you know from somewhere in eastern europe or whatever that is and if you can embrace those cultures and identity i just feel like that could be so healing for people to just realize that they are more than just white. You do have things that you can attach to and that are beautiful parts of you. And if more people started doing that, I just think it would be so helpful. It would lead to empathy. And I think it would just make people just kinder and so many reasons, so many reasons, but yeah, family history work, I think is huge. That's terrific, Grace. When I think of that, I think of Brene Brown, people are hard to hate close up. And then I put that with the, understanding all of our history, our history, um, my history being white may have immigrants. They may have been undocumented. Um, I may have, um, different races in my background. So when that becomes my own blood, um, it changes things for me. So that's really thoughtful. Um, and one of the blessings of really understanding the stories of all of us is we realize we're more the same human family and more alike than different. Um, that's really very thoughtful. Um, you're, I would ask a personal question to Grace. Tell us, you know, you're the youngest of the three here, four, and you're um, on this long road to get a PhD. Um, tell us about why you want to get a PhD and what you hope to do with that. It may just be helpful for other younger people that are want wonder if they can be on this long academic road. Michael and Jacob have got these PhDs, but Talk a bit about why you want to do that and um, and what you hope to accomplish with the PhD. And I would guess it's kind of about helping others, but I'll let you talk. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I've always loved history. And I think it has helped me, especially throughout my bachelor's degree, to understand who I am and to understand why my life was the way that it is, right? Navigating this world being biracial and being in an adopted white family and being in the church, understanding history and why things are the way that they are helps me to come to terms with myself and almost in a way to come to terms with my like two-ness or three-ness, right? To actually have explanations for things. Um, and so that's why it mainly has been helpful for me. Um, but as I go into my master's and as I hopefully go into my PhD, I really Specifically, I want to study the ways that African-American and Asian uh, groups, whether in Asia or Asian-Americans, have interacted with each other um, and the ways the ways that they have been pitted against each other and kind of used as pawns by white supremacy, but also the ways that they have worked together to advocate for racial harmony and justice. Um, I feel like it's a pretty 
understudied area um, in history is seeing how these two groups have worked together since really since the 1700s, 1600, right? When they both were coming, I don't think people, um, a lot of people don't know about um, Asian immigration to the U.S. and how people have been here. You know, there was Asian immigrants since the Spanish colonies and how they have always interacted with black groups. Um, and so that's kind of more what I want to research and trying to understand, right, what the future of these things could be and how if they worked together today, I think it would solve so many problems. Um, but yeah, I think history and sociology, too, especially um, the way I've worded it to Dr. Rue before is that it gave me the vocabulary to explain myself. Um in terms, right, to be able to say, this is what I'm feeling. Now I have a name for it. I can explain it to people. Um, and I think that's what Du Bois does too, right? When he talks about this idea of Tunis or especially his idea, it's almost a rhetorical question he poses is how does it feel to be a problem? And he's saying that to the black community, right? How does it feel to know that your blackness somehow changes your life, right? It makes your life different than that of others. And then how do you deal with that um right being able to have these terms in the research to back up my experiences is almost empowering because one i know that it's you know it's not just me but that there's ways that i can describe it to people and i can put it into words and it's not just lost in my head and it really helps construct right these ideas and experiences and helps me to be able to learn from them and then also work through them kind of emotionally um and psychologically psychologically. It's so. really cool. I can see your professors kind of like parents almost just excited for you and um, recognize the need for your mission and your unique gifts. You bring a personal story to this space if you just shared and um, your academic experience and your professional experience, you know, I, you're just going to do a lot of good and respect for you. I don't know if you always believed in yourself like you do now, and maybe that's helpful for younger listeners that are wondering, can I do this? And, you know, there's no one in my family that's got a PhD and I have two-ness and three-ness. And I sense that you own this two-ness and three-ness and look at it as a good thing. And, um, and then getting a PhD and bringing understanding. I've always felt history is our friend. The more I age up, I, I'm drawn to the history and how we often as a, I'm getting a little sidetracked, but how we you know this so i'm not i'm not sharing anything you don't know better than me but how we sometimes make the same mistakes and i see that sort of happening right now in society with the increased vitriol and the increased polarization and the dehumanizing of some people and and how that leads to worse decisions and certainly have seen that through history so history's our friend i love studying history and i've got a brother it's a history professor in oregon and He's a bright, capable guy. One of the things that Paul Reeves said on that podcast, which was really fascinating to me, he says, we need to actively unteach what we taught about black people. And I've thought a lot about that um, um, because we don't do that very well um, in the church. And I wish sometimes we, that's why I include, encourage everybody to read Paul's book and listen to his podcast. I'm glad you've referenced that and you all know that well, but I think we add to grace's burden and we add maybe to your point to white people's burden. When we um, say these things, it hurts everybody. No one wins and we lose as a society. So I think we have to learn to actively unteach the past, recognize what we've taught in church history or in culture and actively unteach that. And I think that helps us do better. One of the things I've seen 
I'm looking at Twitter right now and Heather Collins. This is her tweet from yesterday. We're recording this podcast, listeners, on Juneteenth. It will be released later. This picture is one I put on the cover of our ward bulletin for Father's Day, Juneteenth. Kaylee Murdoch is the artist, and there's just all black people in this church program. And I just thought, how thoughtful is that? Just, um, I assume Heather's white from her profile pic, but what can I, it's sort of like in our circle of influences, what can we do to elevate um, other voices? And I thought, yeah, that's a pretty cool thing to do. And hopefully she didn't get any backlash. Our church, since it's Juneteenth, has said, I'm reading a tweet from the church. Much has happened to accomplish the educational and human Humanitarian goals set forth two years ago by President Nelson and the NAACP in honor of Juneteenth, NAACP and church leaders gathered Monday in Memphis to announce efforts to ensure longevity of a program that helps reduce infant mortality. And then you you all would get this. You all would know these kind of tweets are coming. The response was, the church is celebrating Juneteenth? This has to be a joke. And so... Um, we all cringe when we just, that's the church's official statement honoring Juneteenth. And um, there's some Latter-day Saints feel that that's not consistent with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we cringe. So there's just so much work to be done in this space to create a Zion people, as all of you know really well. And this kind of an article, um, Lifting the Veil, um, to help us do better is really important. Um, we're kind of coming at the end of our time limit, but I want to make I've spoken a little bit, but I want to make sure that each of you at least have time for one or two more segments. We could go another 10, 15, 20 minutes if you've got time and more to share. I'll offer one concluding thought. Um, one thing that we know from uh, President Spencer Kimball's experience, you know, reading a path-breaking article uh, in dialogue um, about the priesthood restriction um, was just that, you know, good information leads to good inspiration. And we've heard that uh, instruction in general conference, that good information leads to good inspiration. And so my invitation would be for those who are in positions of authority in the church, whether in Relief Society or Elders Quorum or Bishop Ricks, um, I know even general authorities who are aware of this work, um, to, to read it and to let that good information lead to good inspiration. Um, as we said in our discussion, right, there's no one type of Black LDS person. There's no one type of Black LDS experience. And there's no one type of response to racism. But that we do find that about 9 in 10 of the responses actively acknowledge racism and do something to root it out, like our prophet has invited us to do. And so I think that Black people are leading out and creating these, uh, building these bridges of understanding, breaking down segregation and rooting out racism. And I think there's so much that we can gain from that. I think it dispels a lot of stereotypes, uh, like you said, inside the church, but also outside the church. And I, I know that Nate Bird, one of the people quoted, talked about this navigating these two sides of the question, right? People saying, well, how can you be Black and LDS, uh, people outside the church? And I think that's a really important question that a lot of uh, Black people who are in predominantly white religions not just the LDS faith, are really interested in. And we've gotten a lot of really good response from people who are not LDS and not in our faith community, but who are really curious about this Black LDS experience and the fact that it's always existed since 1830, the founding year of the church. 
Um, I think it's a really important issue to examine because it's fundamentally, like Paul Reed's work and others show, it's fundamentally an American race question, right? And so bringing Du Bois into the conversation, one of the best, if not the best, American uh, social theorists of race, it, I just think sets a great um, research agenda for the future for so many scholars to be involved in um, and to hear so many more voices and hopefully have more conferences and just more spaces um, to hear from Black LDS people. So I, I really hope that this good information, and I'm really proud of this article, uh, more proud than I've been in many years. That's, really that's, it, that's serious. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I really hope that it leads to good to good inspiration in the end. Dr. Wood, we're going to give Grace <laughs> the last segment. Sure. Um, I've talked to, you know, friends, family, acquaintances about the article as it's come out, people that have read it. And one thing that is, uh, one thing that has impressed me is, maybe surprised me a little bit is, you know, I'm kind of in the weeds as a sociologist and as a social scientist. And there's a lot of things that we take for granted that we think that everyone else just knows. <laughs> and I've realized how important it is um, yeah, to disseminate these stories to get the word out. And not just our article, but, you know, the people we cite, the articles we cite, and the church's own official things. I've spoken with people, I won't name names, who had never heard of the race and the priesthood essay that's on the church website, right? Um, this is an easy thing that we can do as members to, because a lot of the, a lot of the discussion in the article, people um, that we quoted in the study um, are still grappling with the fallout of the priesthood and temple ban. Why? Because a lot of those old narratives that were used to justify them, people don't realize that the church has explicitly come out and said, we don't support these at all. Like These are not true. Um, so maybe, you know, Jake had such beautiful, inspiring words. Uh, I would give a little bit more concrete advice, which it would be to say, don't take for granted what people do or don't know. Um, there are very simple things that we as members can do, like sharing these essays that already exist, that would go very far in dispelling a lot of harmful myths that continue to fracture our communities and, and harm our members. Um, another thing that came to mind along those lines, actually, maybe I'll, I'll come back over to it. I'll turn it over to Grace. I, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think I kind of have two things that I want to say. Um, one, kind of like what Dr. Wood was talking about earlier is how people tend to think that, you know, Black members have a very stereotypically negative experience. And while I am the first to say that the church has a long way to go and there is a lot to do, and I've had my fair share of bad experiences, that, right, things like this article 
have been such an amazing opportunity for me. Like in terms of my career, right, getting to have writing credit, right, and not, you know, with just a bachelor's degree is amazing. But all of these possibilities and things that I've had in my life have been because of BYU. And, you know, I had a lot of people questioning me about deciding to go there um, and why, you know, it's like, again, it's like, why would you as a black person go to BYU? You're going to, you know, have a hard time. And I did, but it also gave me so many wonderful um, opportunities to grow myself, to learn, to be able to participate in these kinds of things, to be a TA, to take some of these classes. Again, ironically, it's where I learned so much about race and advocacy and activism and things like that has been at BYU. And so for that, I'm very grateful. Um, And, you know, I just want to say that, you know, the gospel and the church and the things that it provides can be really helpful and can lead the world forward and do amazing things when done correctly. And when you have people like Dr. Wu and Dr. Wood who are dedicated to, um, you know, actually using the gospel and the way that they teach and how they go about things. Um, But then the second I'll say is, um, kind of like how Dr. Wood was saying about how people don't really know about, right, this history of the church and regards to race. And um, you mentioned Paul earlier, Paul Reeve saying that, right, we have to actively unteach these things. I think that that is huge. And maybe this is more towards, you know, upper leadership up in Salt Lake, kind of what it's they okay. need to hear is that these, you know, they have to actively undo for the same amount of time, if not more that they taught it incorrectly, right? It's going to take, it's not going to take one pamphlet or one photo or one, whatever. It's going to take 200 years of work and they need to be ready to put in that dedication and that time and the funding to do it. Because if not, it's, it's traumatizing to everybody, right? To experience this. Going back to what I said about how does it feel to be a problem? I remember when I first had that moment in terms of realizing my blackness was a problem. That was in kindergarten. That was early on, Hmm. but realizing my blackness within Mormonism was a problem. Didn't happen until I was in junior high. I remember very clearly in my Utah history class, our teacher asked us, you know, Oh, was Utah who, who thinks Utah was a free slave, a free state, right. During the civil war or like a free territory or whatever it was. And, you know, I confidently raised my hand and was like, well, of course it would be. Right. That, that's, you know, where Mormons were. Of course, it would have been a free territory. They wouldn't have slavery in Utah. And then to be told that I was wrong, awkwardly to have, you know, me, the black student in class, the only black student in class to learn that I was wrong and to have my first right kind of acknowledgement into the real history of the church and what happened. That's traumatizing. Right. To go from being, well, of course, people would have done this right. These are le- these people were led by God's prophet. Why would they do something as terrible and as horrible as slavery and right and allow these institutions to occur? And then when I found out about the priesthood ban a few years later, like that was so damaging, like to my very soul, right? And I also think it's very damaging for white members as well, because they grow up with these same ideas that we're led by God and that you know, sometimes these incorrect notions that prophets can do no wrong. And that's why some people, like you mentioned this tweet, right? People responding to this Juneteenth announcement, they become so defensive because they don't want it. They don't know how to deal with it. They don't know how to deal with, right? Acknowledging the difficult parts of our past and they don't have good access to good sources. And so they become so against it and so defensive. Whereas for other members of color, it's so hurtful to your speech. And so 
if we put in the work to actually teaching these things and having good sources, um, it would just help everybody to be able to come to terms with these things. And we wouldn't be so polarized and so aggressive and emotional about it. If we could just come to the table with humility and respect for everyone and, you know, it should be a part of Sunday school. I don't know why this isn't in the come follow me curriculum. Um, they could do it. You don't have to use any academic sources. You could just use sources that are even written by the church to do it very well. Um, it would be great if there was outside things, but you could go, you know, very easy start ways to incorporate this. And I just think that would help everyone in the long run. If this was just something that we introduce people to in age appropriate ways, um, it would just be so healing for everybody. And to think about having a generation of Latter-day Saints who don't have to have this problem moment where they can just realize that their identity is always allowed and welcomed and can be a part of the church and that their identity makes the church better. Um, I just, I hope we can get to that point. It's a great segment. Michael, did you, you were maybe wanting to come back on and I want to see if Jacob has any final thoughts. Oh yeah. I just was thinking, I was thinking about uh, talking to other white members about church history and, and race and some of the things that have been, you know, that we've learned from historians or things that the church has denounced, like different explanations for the priesthood and temple ban. And one thing that has also impressed me is like, yes, as, as we've mentioned, there are many members that are very resistant to this, but there are also many members who are very, you know, they want to learn, they're ready to learn, they're willing to learn, and they just need someone to to help point them in the right direction, right? I I think I can, you know, <laughs> just, as, just as much as the next person, I can get cynical or have my down days at church, but I believe i really believe that fundamentally most members of the church are are right there here because they love uh they love their savior they love uh the gospel and they take their baptismal covenant seriously and um actually connecting with people through you know talking about race talking about priesthood temple band talking about our article this has also been really rewarding to me. And so I hope to see a lot more of that because yeah, there are a lot of haters, but there are so many people that are ready to learn and they're ready to be more loving and open. And, and so I look forward to that. Jacob, any final thoughts? Thank you. Yeah. Thank you both. And thank you, Richard. Yeah. There are more with us than against us. I agree with that. And, you know, my very first church leader is one of the Black Latter-day Saints quoted in this article. Kathy Stokes was my nursery leader way back wow. uh, in uh, you know, right around 1980. And uh, my life is completely different because of the revelation on the priest in the temple that happened in 1978 when I was uh, not even one year old, uh, just nine months, eight months old as an infant. And being raised on the south side of Chicago where the leadership uh, was just as diverse as the membership, about 45% African-American. And growing up as a child, being a white child and having so many leaders of different different races and, and so many white people that wanted to listen to black people, including my father, who was the bishop. 
Um, and that had a profound influence on my testimony and the rest of my life. And so for me, it's easy to see how important this is, but I think people have to experience that. And they have to, like you said, Brene Brown says, get close. And Brian Stevenson says, right, proximity is so important uh, to healing and justice. And so I hope that people um, truly realize, yeah, we need to hear Black voices. And if they don't have Black members in their ward, they should get curious about why not. And they should invite them to come to speak in their stake uh, and to hear their voices and to read what they write, uh, to listen to their podcasts, to right, to buy their artwork and support their films and their businesses. And I think we'll just grow so much as a people. And, and, and we've seen so much change in the last 10 years since that Race in the Priesthood essay has been um, published. Uh, but there are so many uh, Black people. I have to mention Alice Faulkner Birch, uh, Birch, excuse me, in her amazing new book, My Lord, He Calls Me, and Paul Reeves' book, Let's Talk About Race and Priesthood. There are so many people who are carrying so much of the burden, like Darius Gray, Kathy Stokes have, and we need to help carry that burden to a better future. So thank you, Richard. I'm just so moved um, with this podcast, um, with the things I've learned. I made just a little quick list. I'll blow through it really quickly. Um, I face one painting um, across my laptop screen um, um, drawn by Anthony Sweat. It's um, Q. Walker Lewis, who you three would know. Um, receiving the priesthood as a black man um, in the time of Joseph Smith. And he painted that picture with his eyes open. And Anthony Sweat talked a little bit about it. He wanted us in our day to think about his, his life as a black man. And you would know more of the story of Walker Lewis than I do right off the top of my head. But I think about that. It faces me right now as I'm talking. <laughs> um, and what's my responsibility? And what he, with those open eyes, as he's being ordained, to the priesthood would want me to do to better support Black Latter-day Saints. Um, Grace, I want you to come back on the podcast as much as you want to, but please, you're going to come back on the podcast one day as Dr. Grace Solberg. That's the goal. <laughs> and that will happen. And you will have even more insightful, wonderful things to share. And that's a long road ahead of you, but you're going to do it. There's no question in my mind. And you're going to bless a lot of people. Um, Dr. Rue got a big shout out from Samuel Benson is at the commencement speech at BYU. Um, Samuel's been on the podcast since then on episode 656, just another terrific Latter-day Saint trying to create Zion and a wonderful commencement speech. I think of um, the principles here and they have potentially apply to queer Latter-day Saints. We talk a lot about this subject on the podcast. Not everyone, every episode does, but I thought about the two-ness that queer Latter-day Saints may feel and the need that, you know, you've talked about for Black Latter-day Saints to somehow sometimes erase that so they can fully participate or feel like they're welcome. And, and there's just work to do in that space. I saw a post today of a mom of a gay son who received his, he became a doctor and um, he no longer participates in the church. And I thought about him, um, his first name's Hunter. And I just thought, you know, if he could if his tunis could be better supported in our culture, would he be participating in taking all of his incredibly gifted, bright, articulate, thoughtful? Um, um, so I think about that and what we can do to better support um, queer Latter-day Saints. Um, 
Grace, I thought about your last segment. I wrote something down. You talked really positively about BYU, um, but you knew it'd be a place of tension being black and being LDS. And I wrote down, um, this is an invitation for lean into your tunis. Um, it may cause, it may be painful at times, um, but it may allow um, the growth that can occur within you and with people around you. You have to do that your way. Uh, everybody's not going to thrive at BYU in their tunis. Um, but if that's your reality of your life and you're considering BYU or considering some of these places where being your tunis is, I don't know why their vocabulary under attack is probably too strong, but it creates tension. You may, you may be able to manage that in a way that you grow, experience great personal growth and help others. Now that said, I don't like that culture creates this tension. I think part of the goal is, and the work you're doing is to end the tension. So Tunis can flourish versus have tension around it, but that's the reality of what it's like to be black and Latter-day Saint. So I think your personal story of just leaning into that and, and then finding wonderful mentors there and a community there and the work you've done there is really fulfilling and is really maybe a springboard to what you'll do for the rest of your career. But everybody's got to do that on their own terms. Um, I thought of you, Grace, again, when you talked about um, all the work we need to do since the revelation. And I probably would have thought earlier the revelation got us to the finish line. And then as you were talking, I draw a big bell curve and I put a line right at the top of the bell curve, um, revelation. And it, that's just my visual imagery of sort of say, taking this out of the finish line and putting it in the middle of a bell curve and all the work that, and we're a little bit of the space, you know, past that, that revelation line, but to all three of your points and the research, there's a lot of work we still need to do. And then I thought of your come follow me invitation and come follow me, it, you know, and I wrote, I added on that come follow me by helping to see and eliminate racism. That seems to be um, what Jesus would invite us to do, Grace. And, and so I love the idea of could that, should we broaden that beautiful come follow me to be more like Jesus and, and see the changes we may need to make in our lives. So I yearn for that kind of a content in come follow me and, and maybe that'll happen as we're moving down this bell curve. So I I'm just going to kind of end it there unless anybody raised their hand that just has a final comment. All right. Okay. So um, we'll sign off now, but um, Dr. Michael Wood, Dr. Jacob Rue and future Dr. Grace Solberg. Thank you for your work. I hope that's not putting too much pressure on you, uh, Grace, because now you got some work to do, but I think you're well on the way. And I'm just invite listeners. Don't feel guilty for what you've done in the past. Don't feel overwhelmed for anything you need to do. Just follow the inspiration of maybe the one or two things you can do in your circle of influence. It may start with just reading this article and sharing with others. And this is Richard Osler signing off from another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love. <laughs>